So Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. And I'm going to read just these scriptures out of the NIV because I really believe in this particular two verses they do a great job of the translation here. It says this, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So the the message title is Hope, Riches, and Power. Now when I put it out there, hope, riches, and power, it sounds kind of like a mini-series, doesn't it? I mean, you can just kind of picture it, you know, next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, the mini-series, don't miss this tale of intrigue, hope, riches, and power, starring, I don't know, who do you want to put in there? (laughs) Starring God, I like it. Okay, so the title sounds that way, and and it's not going to be a mini-series, but I'll tell you what it is. Paul gave us a mini sermon in these two uh, verses here, and and so we're going to get into that. Now, Paul says, to start with here, he says, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. What what, what does that really mean, the eyes of your heart? You know, I mean, I look down here, I didn't see any little eyes wiggling around over there. So what's he talking about? Well, what Paul's really saying here is, I want you to really see what it is I'm going to say here. And I want you to really understand. I want you to be enlightened so that you really understand what it is that I am saying to you. He's making a great emphasis, which means this is an important couple of verses here that he wants us to understand. And there are three very important truths in these two verses. And he wants the Ephesians who are going to read this letter, and he wants us to take hold of these these truths. And I I really was thinking about this. I go, you know, if you could understand these three truths, these three realities, I think it would bring an enormous amount of depth to your Christian life. So let's tonight have the eyes of our heart enlightened. So Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would bless this time of study tonight, Lord. Would you open the eyes of our heart? Would you enlighten our understanding, God, that we may really take hold of the truth that you have to share with us this evening. And we thank you ahead of time for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what's the first truth? Number one here, it's the hope of his calling, the hope of his calling. Now, the word hope here, you know, is not what we usually mean when we say hope. And I know you guys have heard this many, many times before, but I think it's really important to to really get a grip on this. Uh, as, As I was reading through some of the Greek scholars um, I have a new, uh, a new one that I've been looking at. Um, his name is Zodahates. He's actually really Greek. That's kind of cool when you're translating Greek. Um, but this is what he has to say about the Greek word for hope. He says it means the desire of some good, the desire of some good with expectation of obtaining it. The desire of some good with the expectation of obtaining that that good. And so what it really means here is that it means that we're going to await for a promise to be fulfilled, a promise that is going to come to pass. Well, what is this promise that Paul's speaking here? It's the promise of his calling. Now, if you look back at Ephesians uh, 1.4, just a few verses back here, it says this, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So I want you to look closely there. You were chosen. When were you chosen? Before the foundation of the world, you were chosen. Well, how do I know for sure that God chose me? Well, the word says that he chose you. If you're a believer in Christ, he chose you. Now, look, it's not based on how you may feel at any given moment. Are there times in your life, are there moments where you feel you're not part of the chosen? I, I know I've had those moments. It's like, am I really God's choice here? But the word says that I am. Now, it brings up another question. If I was chosen, did I have a choice in that? And, of course, that's a debate that's been going on for hundreds of years, which we're not going to settle tonight. Well, maybe we will. Because the truth of the matter is, yes, you had a choice. You had a choice whether or not to respond to God's invitation of salvation to you. You had a choice. But God knew what that choice was going to be. But if you have received that gift of salvation, then guess what? You know that you were chosen. Now, I know that you're kind of going here, my brain's starting to hurt right now. Because I'm trying to reconcile this thing. Well, if I was chosen, then how was it my choice? Because it was already chosen before the foundation of the world, so I didn't have any choice. If I was chosen, I had to respond. Well, that's a debate that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But, you know, tonight, I would say to you this. We're not going to settle that debate. It's settled in my mind. And it should be settled in your mind this. The Bible teaches that you were chosen, and the Bible teaches that you have free will to make a choice. That's what the Bible teaches. I don't know anything about Calvinism, Arminianism. It's not in the Bible. What I know is what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that you were chosen before the foundation of the world if you're a believer in Christ. And the Bible also says, whosoever will cometh. So it teaches both. You know what, tonight, let's not try to reconcile that. Let's just rejoice in the fact that you and I, as believers in Christ, were chosen and that we have the promise of his calling on our lives. Let's rest in that. Now, God wants you to know what this promise of his calling is. He, he wants, to know what it's, wants you to know how it's all about. So he's told us in his word a few things. First, it's the promise of eternal life with Jesus. Now, here's a verse that you can read with me. You don't need even to turn to it. It's John 3, 16. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then John 14, 3 says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, as Jesus said that he would do, I will come again, and I will receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then in 1 John 2.25, he says, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life, eternal life. And, and what goes along with that is the promise that we have victory over this physical world, that death cannot hold us down. The Bible says this, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then we shall be brought to pass, then it shall be brought to pass, the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? That's the promise that you have, the promise of his calling. And there are many other promises that we receive all, all the way through the Bible. 
But the main promise that we have is eternal life with Jesus. It's guaranteed. Now, I want you to think about your life before you accepted Jesus. What hope did you have then? What guarantee? What hope, in other words, with expectation of obtaining, did you have before Jesus? I mean, you might have hoped some things in your life. You might have hoped to get married and have a family and have a house with a white picket fence, two and a half dogs. I was going to say a cat, but Pastor Michael's here, so I can't. You might have dreamed all those things and hoped all those things. You might have hoped to, you know, be a major league baseball player, whatever it may be. But those were hopes without guarantee, weren't they? We had no guarantee of anything in this life. And the Bible plainly states that before Jesus, we were without hope. Ephesians 2.12, if you flipped over real quick, you don't have to, but Ephesians 2.12 says this, that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so aren't you glad that you came to Christ? Aren't you glad that you have a hope now that is guaranteed? It's not something you just dream about. It's guaranteed. And I think as you contemplate that, as you think about the fact that my hope is guaranteed by God's word, and I know God's word is true because all the way through the Bible we see all these things, all these prophecies that came true, all these things that are coming true in my life that God spoke about. And as you contemplate that, it, it really should relieve you from fear in your life. I mean, what is there really to fear when we know the end result? We know that we're going to be with Jesus for eternity. It's kind of like, you know the feeling you get when you're watching a movie, like let's, let's just say you're watching The Force Awakens for the first time, right? How many of you guys have seen Force Awakens? Oh man, not that many. I can't believe that. We don't have any Star Wars people in here. That's crazy. But, you know, in, in this movie, the heroine, uh, her name is Ray, and she gets into this epic battle with the villain, and that's Kylo Ren. And, you know, during that, that battle scene, you're, you, you sense that you're not quite sure. You think she's going to make it. She's going to survive, you know, because she is the heroine after all. But the, but the scene gets really intense, and there's those spots where it's like, oh, no, she's going to die. She's, and you have this fear building up in you that, that this person that you want to be successful, this person you want to continue to see in the movie, they might not make it to the end of the movie. And you get tense, and you get fear. And remember, Han Solo didn't make it. So there's just a little doubt in your mind. But then after it's all over and she survived, then you're kind of like, oh, well, I really, I knew it. I mean, I, I knew she would. I, I knew she would. But you didn't know for sure. But what happens if you're like me when it's a good movie, I generally go to see a good movie more than once or even twice or three times. So what happens in that same scene? You're, you know, all the, the tension's gone, isn't it? It's like, oh, well, she's going to survive. It's no big deal, you know? You watch it, it's entertaining. You know, you like to watch the, the moves, the Jedi moves, but she's going to survive. You're not scared anymore. You're not tense because you've been guaranteed that she's going to survive. Unless they have an alternate ending and then, okay, but we won't go there. You see, you know the end of the story, so there's no need to fear. And that's how it is in our life. We know the end of the story. We know where we're going. We know in whom we have believed. 
and whom we have eternal life. So there's no need to fear. There's no need to fear. What's the second thing that Paul wants us to have the eyes of our heart enlightened to? The thing that he really wants us to know and, and understand? Well, it says that it's the riches of his inheritance. Now, in Ephesians, Paul uses that term riches six times. I think that's why a lot of people like that book. But I want to make something real clear here. We're not going to teach the prosperity doctrine right now, okay? It's not name it and claim it. It's not just believe and you'll get it, okay? That's not the riches we're talking about here. No. Okay, so what are the riches that Paul is speaking of in this particular verse? Well, notice here that he's speaking of riches as an inheritance. Now, we do receive an, uh, an eternal inheritance. That is true. Uh, and in fact, if you go back a few verses in uh, this chapter, you'll see that we do receive an inheritance. And Romans eight seventeen says, And if children, then heirs, that's us, children of God, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So, so the Bible does teach that we get inheritance. That's true. But, you know, when you look closely here, you see that that's not what Paul's talking about in this particular case. This is an inheritance that you probably have not thought much about before. If you look closely again at the verse, you'll see that it says, the glorious inheritance in the saints. In the saints. And that's why I read it out of the NIV, because after reading many translations, that was the best one. It's inheritance in the saints. You see, what Paul is saying here is, we are the inheritance. We are the inheritance. And some of you are going, wait, what? We're the inheritance? Yes. We are God's glorious inheritance. Have you ever thought about yourself that way before? I, most likely not too many of you have thought about that. You've not thought about the fact that I am God's glorious inheritance. And we kind of don't want to think that way because, you know, we get big heads, Right? It's like whenever we start thinking that, we go, oh, yeah, I'm pretty cool. Well, no, that's not what it's about. But what it does teach us is that we are so valuable to God that he wanted us. He wanted us as an inheritance. I mean, it's really an amazing thought. I, you almost can't comprehend that God would choose us to be his inheritance. But it's true. You know, God sees us. And when I say us, I do mean us individually, but I think really a better thought of it is us together corporately as the church. God sees the church as his inheritance. And it's an inheritance which he will claim when the time is right. Now, to kind of make us think about how this works, think of maybe you're a beneficiary in a will. I, I hope that some of you are. I, I'm not. But maybe you're a beneficiary in, in somebody's will. Maybe it's, maybe it's your rich, rich uncle. I don't have one of those, so I know I don't have to worry about this. But when do you receive that inheritance from your rich uncle? It's when he does what? Yeah, when he dies, when he passes away. I hope, by the way, if you have one of those, you're not praying for that. Okay, you're not, you're not gonna, okay, Lord, soon, right, soon. No. You have to be patient. You have to be patient and wait. For the inheritance. Well, in a similar fashion, you know, God is going to receive the church as his inheritance. And he's, I don't want to say he's patiently waiting because he has this all designed, but at the time of the rapture, when the church goes up, 
he's going to receive his inheritance because the church has now passed away. And God's going to receive the church as his inheritance. Now, the reason I think this is so important to us, it's nice to know that we're his inheritance, but I think it's so important to us now, not just when we get to that place, because I, I know that many of you out here struggle with feelings of worthlessness. You know, there's times when you just think, man, I, I just, I'm just not worth anything. I don't have friends. I don't have this. I don't have that. And, and I don't feel good about myself. And I think if you can grasp this truth that you will not have to struggle with this feeling of worthlessness anymore. Because look, really, what does it matter what men may think of you when you know how God looks at you? When you know you're his glorious inheritance. Now, I want you to be assured this doesn't have anything to do with how good you are, how good I am, or how good we try to be. This has nothing to do with, with any of that. Where is inheritance because of one reason? It's God's love for us. It's God's love for us that we're his inheritance. It's his choice. Turn, if you would, to Romans 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. Romans 5, starting in verse 6 through 8. He says this, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That was us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. That's the key I want you to see. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it has nothing to do with us. Take that big head and squeeze it back together there, okay? It's God's love for us is the reason he chose us as his inheritance. Why? He loves us that way? I have no idea. It was his choice. Now, I know that a lot of you have heard this before, but I'm not sure that for a lot of us it really sinks in. I think we hear this a lot, but has it really sunk into you? Because I see even Christians struggling with their self-worth all the time. They're, they're always trying to find something to place you know, their worth in other than God's love for them. I gotta find some other way. And you know, in today's society, I think it's, it's easily seen. I, I don't know if any of you have seen any of the research. Have any of you seen the research on face, about Facebook and how Facebook is actually contributing to the high rates of depression in our country today? Anybody read that? I've read like two or three articles on this. It's pretty interesting. And, and you, you think, why? And, and I'll tell you what, this is especially in younger people, especially in teenagers, that's causing this. Well, why? How, how's that contributing? Well, you think about it. You know, a lot of people, especially teenagers, love to put selfies up on Facebook, don't they? Daily, dozens and dozens of them. And you know what they're doing when they go out there? You may not think this, but you know what they're actually doing? They're counting their likes. They're seeing how many people respond when I put myself out there. And if they don't get that many, they start feeling pretty bad about themselves. And oftentimes what they'll do is put more out there. Well, I got to get more than that. And they're, they're checking with their friends. How many likes did you get on your picture? How many did you get on your picture? And they're comparing themselves with everybody else. And they're trying to find their worth by getting their picture out there. And some of them, of course, even are get going so far as to put provocative pictures of themselves because they think they'll get more likes that way. 
You see, they're looking, they're looking for their worth. And when they don't find it out there, it's, it's devastating to them. Now, I know that's not any of you, right? None of you guys put selfies out there and count the likes, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it may seem right offhand silly, but it, it's not. The studies bear this out that it's true. But when you think about it, it's really not silly, is it? Because when you think about it, mankind has always tried to find his worth in something other than God. He's always looking for some other way to feel good about himself other than just saying, hey, it's cool because God loves me. I'm his glorious inheritance. You know, advertisers know this, don't they? You know, advertisers, they, they, they have this down to a T. You know, buy this particular car and you'll be the most popular person in the world. Just buy this car. And you can see, you know, you get the car, everybody's, everybody loves them. Or how about this? How about wear these clothes? Just get these clothes over here and you will be the most attractive person on the face of the earth. Just get these kind of clothes. And then, of course, drink this beer and you will be the most interesting man in the world. You know, it goes on and on. They appeal to our flesh. They appeal to our desire to have self-worth. But just think of the fact that God, who created everything, including you, wanted you. He wanted you as his inheritance. He wanted you because he wanted to have fellowship with you. That's what he says in his word. Jesus, in the parables of Matthew, described us as a hidden treasure and a pearl of such great value in human terms that it would be like a man selling everything he owned to obtain that treasure or that pearl. That's your value. That's how God sees you. And I think when you come to that realization, if you can really grab hold of it, it really should change the way that you approach your life. You shouldn't need any longer to seek the approval of man, but instead you should think about, I just want to do what's pleasing to my father who has chosen me as his glorious inheritance. And then, you know, that could feel burdensome because it's like, okay, well, I don't need to be perfect now. I, he chose me when I was a sinner, but now I got to be perfect, right? And you kind of pull that burden on yourself. No, no, no. Okay, you don't need to do that because we're under grace, not under the law. We're under grace. And there's another reason that this is not burdensome, and that's the third great truth of this little mini-sermon by Paul. Truth number three, his great power for us. So I want you first to think about, well, okay, what is this great power? You know, what, what is it really like? I want you to think about these particular verses. You can write them down and look at them later. Psalm 113.5 says this. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? Now, that's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no one. Exodus 9.14, for this time I, God, will send all my plagues on you, Egypt. I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And then Isaiah 44.7 says, who is like me? I love this. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. 
So if you're like God, proclaim and declare that you're like God. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time I established the ancient nation and let them declare the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. He's saying, okay, if you're like me, then you tell me in order everything that's happening. You tell me everything that's going to happen. Okay, and then we'll talk about whether you're like me or not. Isaiah 46, 9 says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. You see, his power is greater than any other existing power. It's the ultimate power. It's beyond any kind of comparison. It's the power that created the universe and every living thing. It's the power that brought Egypt to its knees by signs and wonders. It's the power that Jesus had to heal the sick. It's the power that Jesus had to give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. It's the power that Jesus had to cast demons out of people. And ultimately, it was the power even to bring forth life after death. That is God's great power. Ephesians 1.20 says, the power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, the place of authority and power in the heavenly places. Far above, far above any principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. You see, his power knows no limits. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, yes, yes, yes. I know this is true. I've read it in the Bible before. But you're thinking, you know, I don't often see that power in my life. I don't often see that power working even in some other Christian's life. But that doesn't change the truth. The truth is in the word. It's not in what you see or what you experience. This is the power that God gives to us. It's God's word. God can't lie. So you got to ask yourself a question. If I'm not seeing this power working in my life, then I have to ask myself the question, why not? God says it's there. He says it's available. He says he gives it to us. Why do I not see it happening in my life? And that's a good question. I think it leads to a second question. Are there things in my life that are hindering this power from working? Remember back in the book of Mark um, that we just studied a while ago? And we were looking at Jesus when he came to his hometown. And the Bible shows us there that Jesus didn't do many miracles there. And what was the reason he didn't do many miracles there? Because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Now look, it wasn't because they didn't believe he could do miracles. We need to make sure we understand that in this particular case. It wasn't a lack of faith that he could do miracles. It was they didn't believe in him. They knew he could do miracles. He had done them all over the area in the region. They, they probably had seen him do miracles before if they had gone any other place that he was. If not, they at least had heard many, many times about the miracles Jesus was doing. They knew he could do miracles, but they didn't believe in him. They didn't believe that he was the son of God. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. I don't know what for sure they did believe, but they didn't believe those things. So it's evident, if you do not believe first in Jesus Christ, 
as Savior and Lord, you're not going to see that power working within you. That's a given, except for one place. You know what that is? There is still a power of Jesus working within you, and that's that power that's drawing you to him as he woos you to come to salvation. If you're here tonight, maybe you've felt that draw. Maybe you've never made a commitment to Christ. You don't know that power because you haven't believed in him. But that power is drawing you. It's drawing you to him. But if you want to see his power working within you, you must first put your trust and faith in him. You must believe in Jesus and who he is. Secondly, and maybe harder for most of us, unconfessed sin will be a hindrance to seeing God's power working in your life. Now, that's a hard truth. You mean if I'm in unconfessed sin, God won't do some things? And the answer to that is very likely yes. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this. Husbands, likewise dwell with them, meaning your wives, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. You see what that implication is there, guys? The implication is if you're not treating your wife the way that you should be treating your wife, your prayers are not going to have the power that they should have. Whoa. And wives are going, amen. Yeah. Amen. Remember that one. Write it down. 1 Peter 3, 7. Stick it on the mirror. 1 Peter 3, 7. Flip over, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Starting in verse 14. Hebrews 12, 14. It says this. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Ooh, can I read that again? Pursue peace with all people and holiness being set apart to God, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for what? For repentance. When he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So we see that there's a need for confession of sin and repentance as prerequisites for God's power working within us. Now, does that mean God could never do anything with us when we're unconfessed? Well, God can choose to do whatever he wants. But the Bible's teaching us that if we really want to see his power working in us, we've got to confess our sin, and we have to be set apart to him. That's what holiness is all about. And so when we want to see God's power really working, then we want to be clean vessels before him, and the only way you can do that is confess your sin because you're going to have some. Nobody is without sin. So confess your sin. Give it over to him. Turn from the sin. Say, okay, God, I've been doing that enough. I don't want to do that anymore. Let's turn, Lord, direct me the other way here. And watch the power of God working in your life. Now, there's another reason that we might not see the power of God working in our life. And that's in James. So just turn one book over 
to your right. James chapter 4. James 4, starting in verse 2. James says this, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know, so that's a, that's a tough one. You know, James is very blunt. And he's basically saying something very important. I want to give you an example of this. Do you remember in the book of Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8, uh, Simon the Magician. How many of you guys remember that? Remember Simon the Magician? Yeah. Simon the Magician uh, could do some tricks. And he had certain power. But then he came across Philip. And, and he saw these signs and wonders that Philip was doing. And it says that he even came to believe in Jesus through that. That he came to believe in Jesus. But then along came Peter and John. And Peter and John began to lay hands on people and they would receive the Holy Spirit. And he saw that happen. And let's uh, pick up in Acts 8.18. 8, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. Acts 8.18. 8, says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Verse 21, you have no part or portion in this matter for, and get this part right here, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. And I don't want to get into all the details of that. Was did Simon really a believer or not? You know, we don't know for sure. We do know this. In this matter, at least, his heart was not right before God. And so that's an example of what James is speaking about. You see, if you want to see God's power working in a mighty way in your life, you must first surrender your will to his will. Your will to his will. That way you know you have the right intentions of the heart. If you haven't surrendered your will to his will, you don't know whether your heart's going to have the right intentions or not. You must come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want what you want and, and, you know, you don't lie to the Lord. You might want something really bad yourself. And you go, well, and this is what I want, Lord, but I really want what you want. <laughs> Have you ever done that? And you're, then you're kind of questioning, do I really mean that when I say that to God? Did I really want what he wants? Well, you, when you get to have, I'm not going to say old, when you have a little more experience in the Lord, <laughs> you, you come to a place where you really mean it. You, Lord, I want what you want. I don't care what I want because I've gone through so many things in life where I got what I wanted and it wasn't that great. But, Lord, every time it was what you wanted, it was awesome. And so what James is telling us here, rather than desiring his power like Simon to give us, you know, some worldly power, something that we weren't intended to have, things that you, as James said, you might even fight to obtain these things, 
Instead, you're desiring the things of the Spirit, things that are going to glorify God and things that are going to edify the body of Christ. When you surrender your will to his, those are the things that you'll be asking for. Those are the things that you'll want to see happen. And you, and you have to understand that this power is nothing in ourself. It's only available by God's Holy Spirit. And it only works when it's according to God's will and God's purpose. You know, all of those times when Jesus said, in my name, this is what he meant. He meant what's in my will, what I'm desiring to have happen. You can pray for things, and if it's not in God's will, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. That's why you want to pray as we were taught in the disciples' prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Before we start asking for things, let's just remember who we're talking to here. And let's allow that whatever else from here, God, I might say and I might ask for, I've prefaced it with your will be done. And we see that, don't we, all through the book of Acts. We see the mighty power of God used by people who had surrendered their will to his will. So the question really is, do you want to live your life in complete surrender to him? Do you want to live in obedience to him? He will give you the power to do that. You can live in obedience to God. Now, we're not saying perfectly because we're going to be in the flesh. But you can live in surrender and obedience to God. How do we know that we can do that? Okay, stay with me here. Stay with me. Since we know that it's God's will for us to live our lives in obedience to him, we know that, right? How do we know that? The Bible tells us. We're instructed repeatedly in his word to live in obedience to the commands of Christ. Amen? Okay, we know that. And since we know that Jesus told us, ask for anything, anything in my name, meaning in my will, according to my purposes, ask for anything according to my purposes, if we ask those things, what did Jesus say would happen? He will give them to you. It will be granted to us. Anything in his name. So since we know it's in his will to live this way, and we pray in Jesus' name and in his will, and it's according to his will, then we know that he'll do that. We can rest in that. We can rest knowing that God will give us the power to do what he's asked us to do. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to make sure that we're asking him for his will to be done in our life. We need to surrender our will to his. When we do that, then we can be guaranteed that he's going to provide us that power. And it's not necessarily the, the power to go out and do all miraculous things, although it may be. It may be your spiritual gift. You may have the gift of miracles. You know, there might be somebody in this church tonight that has the gift of miracles that's never used it. Do you believe that? I think we look at some of the gifts and we say, nah, I don't know. We don't see that around anymore. Well, maybe we don't see it around anymore because you haven't surrendered your will in that area and said, God, if you have that gift for me, I want to have it and I want you to use it. And I want you to use it for your glory, not mine. We might have somebody here that has that gift. We might have somebody that has the gift of teaching that's never used it yet. Because you kind of thought, eh, you know, I'm afraid to get up in front of people and I don't know if I could do that. And yet, 
You may have that gift. You may be able to take the words of scripture and enlighten them in a way that other people can't do. God wants to use that power. You have to surrender your will to his will and then watch what he does. And then it makes me ask a question. Why, why do we so often fail to do that? Have you ever asked your question, that question? Why do we fail so often to just surrender to God's will and then trust that he's going to do what he does? And I got a couple of thoughts here. You can see what you think. Number one is we don't really believe that he'll do what he promised. We don't want to admit that. But we oftentimes really don't believe that he's going to do what he promised to do. Number two, I think we have this silly notion that we can do it in our own strength. So we don't bother asking. I'll get her done. Just watch me. I'll get it done. You know what? How about tonight, you and I, once and for all, get rid of those two notions. That we, that we completely throw them out. That we don't ever think those two things again. That I can do it my own strength. Or that God won't do what he's promised to do. I mean, think about if you could get those two things out of your mind. Are you guys ready to do that? You guys want to do that? Well, we can do that because we just said it's in God's will that we do that. He'll give us the power to do that. Let's get rid of those two things in our minds. And let's not think that way anymore. Let's think about the fact that God has promised certain things and he will deliver on his promises. And when we do that, then we, then we really get to see things God's way rather than our own way. Now, wouldn't that be great? To, to really just look at every situation of your life and always see it God's way instead of your way. Wouldn't that be awesome to do that? You know, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to see things his way. You know, how many times we talk about, oh man, you know, I needed to pray for that person, but you know, that person really bugs me. I don't even really like him. And so we don't pray. And, and we think about in the flesh how that person just is just, I can't pray for that person. I just don't like that person. But we haven't seen him the way God sees him. Have any of you ever had that happen to you when all of a sudden a lightning, a lightning bulb? No, a light bulb. Maybe a lightning bolt came and hit you and, and all of a sudden you began to see a person that you've had issues with maybe even for years. And all of a sudden... God speaks to you and you see them the way God sees them. You ever have that experience? I know that some of you have because you've told me that. It's an amazing thing. God will do that for us. I want to always see things the way God sees them. I want to see the world the way God sees them. I want to see what's happening in our world and, and that and, and not always, you know, see it the way that Fox News sees it. <laughs> or what I see on Facebook. I want to see it the way God wants me to see it. And I can't do that without the power of his Holy Spirit working within me. So three takeaways from Paul's little mini-sermon here. Number one, we should live without fear. Why? Because we have the hope of his calling. We have the promise of the hope of his calling. Number two, we should live without the need to find worth in anything other than the fact that we're God's glorious inheritance. We need to look nowhere else. And then number three, we want to live in, with his power working inside of us, the power that he gave to us who believe. That's the promise. His great power given to those who believe. We want to live those three ways.
Would you guys agree with me that that's how we want to live? So as we come before the Lord in prayer, let's just give our hearts to that tonight. Let's, let's just ask the Lord to help us in those three areas of our life. So Heavenly Father, just come to you tonight and thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that because of what you've taught us, that we can live without fear of what's going to happen in our life because the promise of your calling is given to us. And it's an assured hope that we have. It's guaranteed, God. You paid the price for it. It's going to happen. So help us to live that way. And Lord, help us to live in a way where we're not looking to the things of the world for our our value. Help us to know and understand that you valued us so greatly that you gave your only son for us, Lord, and, and that you call us your glorious inheritance and that you look forward to the time when the church as a whole is gathered together in fellowship with you. And Lord, help us to live by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to, to really grasp hold of the fact that you want to work great things in our life and that you give us the ability to be obedient to you by your Holy Spirit, not because of anything in us, Lord. Help us to just kind of throw away the chains and the things that have bound us from living our life this way, Lord, a life that when people would look at us, they would say, wow, there is something different about this person. I need to find out what it is because we're living in this way that you've called us to live. And Lord, tonight, if there's anyone here that maybe they've even been around the things of the church, maybe they've been in this church for months, maybe even years, but they've never really, truly, truly surrendered their heart and their life to you. I pray that tonight you would be willing them to do that. And maybe, maybe it's the person who actually has never received you as Lord and Savior, and they've never actually seen this power working in, your life, in their life. And, and so, God, if that's the case, I, I pray you'd speak to that person, and tonight would be their night, that they would just ask you in the quietness of their heart right now, Lord, I see that I need you. I see that you have power that no one else has, that, Lord, you died for me on a cross, and, and God, I want to receive you, and I want to receive the power that you have by your Holy Spirit to live the godly life you've called me to live. Maybe there's that person tonight. If that is you, I, I hope that you prayed that. And, and for others of you that have just been looking at this going, you know, I, I haven't seen this much power working in my life. I, I'm continually in that place of disobedience. I'm continually in that place where, where I'm not the example that you want me to be, Lord, that I'm, I'm just not seeing your power working in any way in my life. And if that's you tonight, I just pray that you would speak to the Lord now and just say, Lord, tonight I want to give my life completely over to you. I've, I've received you as Lord and Savior, but I've never really surrendered my will completely to you. I want to do that tonight, Lord. And just trust that when you do that, that God will work in the way that we've spoken of here tonight. It's his work working in you. It's not what you're going to do. So Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray that you will bless your word, Lord, that you will keep in remembrance for all of us those things which we need to take away from your word tonight. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.